This is Ethan Siegel, and welcome back to the Starts With a Bang podcast. When the Big Bang occurred some 13.8 billion years ago, our universe began in a hot, dense, and rapidly expanding state. Over that time, a number of remarkable things happened, giving rise to the universe we know today. Matter won out over antimatter. We formed atomic nuclei and then neutral atoms. The first stars formed. Matter became dominant over radiation, which redshifted away towards insignificance. And we formed generations of stars, galaxies, and eventually organic molecules and things like planets with living things on them, like our world, Earth. So here we are, with 13.8 billion years having passed since that momentous event. And yet, everything we know of in the universe is limited by the speed of light. Nothing can move faster than that. And in fact, unless you yourself are massless, you're restricted to moving below the speed of light. So how is it then, when we look out at the most distant objects in the universe, galaxies, clusters of galaxies, the first stars, the leftover glow from the Big Bang itself, and in principle as far back as the limits of our imaginations can take us, why is it that we can see back 46 billion light years when the universe itself is only 13.8 billion years old and is limited by the speed of light. The reason behind this highlights one of the most important differences between special relativity and general relativity. Special relativity is the one we're more familiar with. This is the one that says if you have something moving close to the speed of light and you try to give it more and more kinetic energy, it is going to move faster, but it's not going to move faster the way if you moved at 10 miles an hour and you threw a ball at 20 miles an hour, it would go at 30 miles an hour. If you move close to the speed of light, you will add some velocity to that, but that velocity is going to be asymptotically limited by the speed of light itself. But if you're moving at 80% the speed of light and you throw something else that's also moving at 80% the speed of light relative to you, then what's someone on the ground going to see? What's someone who's watching you throw this ball going to see? Well, they'll see you moving at 80% the speed of light, but that ball won't be moving at 160% the speed of light, but rather at more like 98% the speed of light. And that's due to special relativistic effects. But this relativistic analysis, this special relativity, only applies to the case where you have multiple objects that are moving in a static background space-time, where you have multiple objects that are at the same location in space and time. That's the only way that simultaneity works. Otherwise, you have to use the full general theory of relativity. And in general relativity, unlike special relativity, space-time itself is an evolving quantity. That means that things can expand, contract, deform. The fabric of space itself is not fixed in general relativity. But its evolution, rather, is determined by the full sum of matter, energy, and radiation present within. In it. So I want you to try and imagine the fabric of space. 
This is really difficult to imagine because it's very unintuitive. So the way I want you to imagine this fabric is not like the fabric of a bedsheet or the fabric of a shirt or even the fabric of a stretchy thing like a balloon. Instead, I want you to imagine a soap bubble. I want you to imagine you have a ring that has a thin film of soap between it, just like you would blow bubbles out of when you were a kid. But instead of this being a single piece of wire, I want you to imagine that this can stretch as much as it can, and it'll never break. That soap bubble will never pop. It won't even get thinner. It's just going to stretch and expand if you expand the ring that surrounds it, and it's going to contract if you compress the ring. So how does this work? I want you to imagine that on all different sides, maybe you'll imagine it's a square or a circular ring, but it has some of the fastest runners that you can imagine connected to this ring. So what happens when the universe begins to expand? Well, it depends on what's present within it. The rate of expansion of the universe is dependent on whether it's full of radiation, whether it's full of matter, whether it contains dark energy or something else, and what the ratios of those things are. So initially, right after the Big Bang, the universe begins expanding very rapidly. It's like these fast runners are all connected to this ring and they're running as fast as they possibly can. But as time goes on and the matter density drops and the radiation density drops, this expansion slows down. So that's how space-time begins to work. That's how space-time works in the young universe. So what does that mean for the size of the universe? Imagine you have two objects on this soap bubble. Well, as this space stretches, what's one object going to see compared to that other object? Imagine you're looking at that. You're standing at the location of one object and you're watching the other one. As space itself expands, you're going to see that other object recede from you. Initially, as the radiation density drops, as the matter density drops, you're going to see this moving away from you. But the rate at which it moves away from you is going to appear to slow down as time goes on. So, yes, it'll start moving very quickly away from you, but as time goes on and the density drops and the expansion rate starts to go down, it's like these runners at the edges are slowing down. And it's also like that distant object, which is really a distant galaxy or a distant star or a distant location in space, is going to appear to recede from you, but less and less quickly as time goes on. As this expansion rate continues to slow down, it means that objects that were forever beyond your horizon, objects that you couldn't see initially, have suddenly come within it. Something that leaves at the speed of light can now be glimpsed by you. So as time goes on and the expansion rate drops, you're able to see more and more and more of the universe. Rather than just seeing the hundred nearest galaxies or the thousand or the million nearest galaxies, our horizon of what's visible to us expands to include things up to hundreds of billions or even maybe a trillion galaxies as time goes on. 
it's actually kind of interesting. What we can see in the universe as far as distance goes has absolutely nothing to do with the motions of the objects within it. Whether the stars and galaxies were completely stationary relative to one another, or whether they were moving arbitrarily close to the speed of light, wouldn't change the distance at which we can observe objects. That's completely dependent only on space-time itself. And the way space evolves, the way the distance that we can see evolves, is dependent only on one thing in our universe, and that is what is the density in terms of energy at any given time. Now this includes multiple different components, namely radiation like photons, matter including atoms and dark matter, and dark energy which is that energy inherent to space itself. Here's an interesting thing. If the universe were a certain age, let's say we know it's 13.8 billion years old, but let's pick a nice round number to make things easy. What if the universe were only 10 billion years old? Well, if the universe were made 100% out of radiation, how would the universe have expanded since the Big Bang? If it were 10 billion years old, that would mean at any given location in space, you'd be able to see objects that were located within a radius of 20 billion light years of you. Twice the speed of light times the age of the universe would be the limit of what you could observe. The universe evolves differently if it were made 100% of matter. So if you had a 10 billion year old universe that were 100% made of matter since the Big Bang, how would that have evolved? Well, you'd be able to see anything that was located within a radius of 30 billion light years from you. The formula for that would be 3 times the speed of light times the age of the universe would tell you how far your observable horizon was. And if you had a universe that were 100% dark energy, well, that gets problematic. If your universe were truly 100% dark energy, it would have expanded exponentially from you. Instead of a nice simple number like 2 times the speed of light times the age or 3 times the speed of light times the age, you would get an exponential function. This would be something that would be virtually impossible to calculate using a simple number times the speed of light times an age. You would get an exponential function instead. We're very fortunate that dark energy is only about 70% of the universe we observe today because that means it hasn't had a lot of time to dominate. Given our 13.8 billion year old universe, and given the mix of radiation, matter, and dark energy that we observe, that's how we get that number of 46 billion light years. It's actually 46.1 billion light years, as best as we can tell. So with a 13.8 billion year old universe with our mix, if it were 100% radiation, it would be about 27.6 billion light years in all directions that we can see. If it were made 100% of matter, it would be just a little over 40 billion light years that we could see, about 41.4 billion light years in all directions. But given that extra amount of dark energy that we have, that's what brings it up to 46.1 billion light years in radius.
as far as we can see. The reason we can see as far as we can see has nothing to do with the speed at which the objects within our universe is moving. Rather, it has everything to do with the rate at which the fabric of space itself has expanded as time has gone on. No matter what, we can only see the light that can reach our eyes in the time that the universe has been expanding. Since the Big Bang, light has traveled a maximum of 13.8 billion light years. And that's assuming that it was created at the moment of the Big Bang and has traveled to our eyes and is only reaching us right now. But what we give that figure of 46 billion light years, that figure represents where that object is today that emitted that light 13.8 billion years ago. So the universe has expanded since the Big Bang. The light has traveled to us since that emission of light all that time ago. And when we give the distance to that object today, that takes the entire expansion history of the universe into account and tells us how distant that object is today with all the space expansion that has occurred over that time. And all of that together tells us that the universe must be bigger than 13.8 billion years if we accept that space itself has been expanding. The only way we could have a universe where we could see as far as the universe is old, where a 13.8 billion year old universe would mean we could see 13.8 billion light years away, would be if the universe itself were truly static. In an expanding universe where the fabric of space itself expands as time goes on, we must see further. Now, what's really interesting about that is if the universe were operating in the reverse fashion, if we lived in a universe that were undergoing a big crunch, a contracting universe, it would mean the exact opposite. It would mean that a 13.8 billion year old universe it's allowing us to see less than 13.8 billion light years because an object that emitted light 13.8 billion years ago that was collapsing, a universe that was collapsing, would mean as that light reaches us today, the universe would now be smaller and that object might only be 6 billion light years away or 3 billion light years away or if we were very close to a big crunch, maybe only a few thousand light years away. So we should be thankful that our universe is expanding. We should be thankful for this unintuitive picture because it means that we can see farther into the universe than we could under any other circumstances. This allows us to reconstruct the expansion history. This allows us to see beyond what's presently reachable. And this allows us to truly understand more of the universe than we could under any other circumstances. And as we approach the end of the year, I'd like to give you all a reminder to look skyward. In the morning sky, we can see Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and pretty soon Saturn all clustered together in the early morning sky. But something else spectacular and rare is coming. Comet Catalina, only discovered two years ago, is making its last final trip to the inner solar system before it gets ejected 
by the sun and by the other planets, a slight perturbation of its velocity, increasing its speed by only about 20 meters per second, has been enough, that little addition of velocity has been enough that as it's making its trip towards the outer solar system, it will never turn around again and never plunge back to the inner solar system. Yet we'll be able to see it if we're lucky. If you have clear skies, particularly during the latter half of December, the place to look is, if you can find the Big Dipper in the Northern Hemisphere, follow the arc of the Big Dipper's handle to the orange giant Arcturus. Arcturus is the brightest star in the Northern Hemisphere. Although Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, is visible, it's actually a southern star, well below the, the celestial equator. But... Comet Catalina will pass the celestial equator on December 17th and head north towards the orange giant Arcturus itself. If you can find the planet Mars in the sky and you draw an imaginary line from Mars to Arcturus, the closer you get to New Year's Day, to the early morning skies on New Year's Day, the closer and closer Comet Catalina will get to Arcturus. And it should be visible to the naked eye from mid-December until about New Year's. Even if you're not that lucky, Break out a pair of binoculars, and you should be able to see it through that. Don't miss your last chance to see this comet before it leaves us forever. For Starts with a Bang, this is Ethan Siegel thanking everyone for listening to our podcast, and thanks to all our Patreon supporters for supporting us. In particular, I'd like to thank our patrons donating at the $5 a month mark and above. I'd like to thank Bakhtiar, Peter Dillon, Robert Hansen, Thomas Sola, Denier, Igor Mitrofanov, Rafal Wojtschuk, Pedro Texera, Kathy Reese, Brian Terry, Danny, Dennis Arnaud, Alexander Marius, Gaijin, Bob Wilson, Adam Rabung, Andrew Douglas, Weller Tractor Salvage, Jim Cummings, Michael Mason, Sidney Atwood, Christopher Wetmore, Willie Keplinger, Harry Plumley, John Methot, Jose Enrique, Rachel Merritt, Nathan Hanna, Thomas All, Glenn McDavid, Nick McCann, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Daniel Aitken, Radek Nesbeda, Patrick Dennis, Chris Hilly, Richard White, Joe Latone, DGE, John Seal, Fletch, Philip Radulovic, Nathan Heston, Braxton Thomason, Karen Garrison, and Zarko Opacic. Thanks everyone for your support, and I'll see you back here next time.